So even when the odds are stacked against you, there is a mechanic within the dice that can save your little hiney or strike the killing blow. Even I don't have all all hope lost, right? Um, no, as long as no, I can roll a not. crit. <laughs> so <laughs> that's cool. Well, I am extremely happy you're asked, you asked that question um, because that is why I love the game so much. things better than stepping away from the screens, unplugging and sitting around a table to do battle with your friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars brings you the latest strategies, tactics, and reviews on board games, card games, and miniature games like Malifaux. If you want useful information on the games you already play, or new insights on great games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Welcome to the third floor. I'm Craig, and today we have two guests trying to convince me that I should be playing Warhammer Underworlds by Games Workshop. Jason, welcome to Tabletop Talk. Hey, how are you? Good. So Jason and I have known each other, what, for how long now? Six, seven years? Uh, Yeah, close to seven years. So we met uh, right when the uh, local GW store opened, and uh, he liked to play 40K, and I liked to play 40K. And over the last seven years, uh, we've hung out, played all kinds of different games with each other. We both have little daughters about the same age, uh, so it's great to finally have you on the show, Jason. Can you give the uh, uh, audience kind of a little bit of a background about you as a gamer? Yeah, sure. Thanks. And uh, it's great to be here, so thanks for having me. Um, But I, you know, my uh, tabletop game started back in high school. I got introduced to 40K. Um, I've been a longtime board game player ever since my my youth, which is many, many moons ago. Um, (laughs) uh, And currently, uh, you know, I focus on all GW product. So I play a lot of 40K. Uh, As we're going to talk about tonight, Warhammer Underworlds is my flavor of the week. Uh, I've been in Age of Sigmar, really any GW IP. I'm all about it and, and like to play it. Uh, and I'm also a co-host of a podcast called Battle Mallet. Very nice. And uh, for those of you, and then we'll give you links in the show notes. Um, the Battle Mallet podcast is a great podcast that you should add to your subscriptions. So our other guest is Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy and I have known each other for about the same time, uh, met at the same place, which is that GW store that opened up here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Jimmy, I think you and I, we started playing uh, Hobbit back then called Lord of the Rings, I think, before we played 40K. Does that sound right to you? That sounds right. Yeah. So we spent a embarrassing amount of money uh, on that game. And pr- probably one of my favorite runs uh, as a gamer was Jimmy and I, once a week at least, uh, just meeting up and just beating the hell out of each other with uh, Lord of the Rings. And what was fun about it is, you know, each time we would build towards each other, paint up a couple more models and uh, beat the hell out of them. Uh, what's crazy is I was terrible as a gamer back then, as I am now. So Jimmy uh, pretty routinely routed me, but uh, we had good times. Jimmy, can you give uh, the audience kind of an idea of uh, your background as a gamer? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, similar to uh, Jason, I started playing uh, back in high school. I played a, a Warhammer 40K. And uh, as I got older, I took a little break and then came back into the game when I moved to North Carolina. 
uh, started you know playing Warhammer 40k with you guys as well as uh, the Hobbit. When I played the Hobbit with Craig, that's actually when I first learned about painting in more than three colors. Uh, so that was, uh, <laughs> that was good for me to find out. And then uh, after that, after playing the Hobbit, then I uh, started playing uh, other games like Malifaux and have played Malifaux competitively. Very nice. Um, all right. So kind of the idea today is we're going to talk about uh, this GW game. And I've watched you guys play it. Um, I've read the rules. I actually own um, the game itself, the Underworld's uh, starter box set. And even though I haven't played yet, um, I'm anxious to, and probably for one reason and one reason only be- because you guys love it so much. So I respect the fact that the two of you, you know, really have latched on and enjoy this game and respect your guys' opinion. So really, we're going to kind of walk through what it is that kind of set the hook for the two of you. We're going to break it into four sections. So there's really four things that are going to get me into a game and that are going to keep me into a game. Uh, and that's the theme. What happens kind of pre-game? So what are the decisions that are being made before you ever put models on the table? The in-game mechanics. So what, while you're playing, makes the game cool and unique? And then I do enjoy the hobby aspect, so we'll kind of finish up talking about that. Now, before uh, we met up, I went over to the website and I wanted to check out and see how uh, Games Workshop describes the game. So here's what Games Workshop says about Warhammer Underworlds. Warhammer Underworlds is a game for two to four players in which each player takes their warband of fantastically detailed Citadel miniatures and pits them against their rivals in battle in the dark city of Shadespire. It's a game of strategy, fast-paced combat, and devious ploys, and though you'll find this an easy game to pick up, only the most experienced players will master it. All right, so let's talk about theme. Um, Jason, I know it's kind of set in the same world as as, uh, Age of Sigmar, is that right? That is correct. It, it, it is set in the same universe as Age of Sigmar, um, except this is a city that uh, used to uh, – it was a human city that thrived. And they kind of mastered this uh, technology of shade glass that allowed them to live forever. And Nagash got pretty mad about this, so he trapped them into the city. So the city is kind of uh, – people go there, so the war bands that are in the game – uh, are searching for the law and lost tre- treasures of the city of Shadespire, um, but the you know the ghosts and everybody they get they get trapped there in the, in this because Nagash will not let them die. He has cursed them forever to live in this peril uh, world and city. So that's that's the theme. That's kind of cool because it um, I guess it gives them a ton of flexibility as far as bringing in kind of new war uh, war bands right and that's what they're called right war bands yeah war, the, the armies are called war bands and yes it does give them huge flexibility so you know Shadespire was season one and that's where they introduced eight war bands that kind of either were the protectors of the city or war bands that wandered in there looking for the, these treasures and and long lost cataphracty relics um and then season two is uh, tied into the a- AOS Age of Sigmar narrative where Nagash, uh, you know, makes this huge like earthquake of magic and power. And he actually cracks open the night vault, which is the dungeon of the city of Shadespire, where all the, the human wizards that were uh, using the technology were kind of sealing stuff away. So then they introduced a whole bunch of other other uh, war bands that way. Gotcha. That's cool. Um, so, Jimmy, it's, you know, the theme sounds cool. Um, and Jimmy, what I'm wondering from you um, is somebody who is a little bit newer to the game. Um, you came to it from Malifaux. Do you feel like, you know, all the cool stuff that Jason just talked about, does does that translate to the table or does the game end up becoming more mechanical while you're playing? 
Yeah. So I think, uh, well, first of all, um, someone locking a bunch of people in a dungeon sounds a lot like Craig's house. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Second of all, um, I really enjoy, uh, as you guys know, playing competitive games. Um, And and this is kind of just the the latest uh, competitive game that uh, I've uh, jumped into based on, uh, you know, experiences with playing with friends and uh, kind of exploring other options. I think all of us are very lucky that in 2019, there are a lot of uh, amazing options for wargaming and competitive wargaming, especially more than there were 10 years ago. You know, and for me, uh, when I go to a competitive wargaming event, uh, I primarily uh, value two things, uh, agency and fun. So agency, meaning that uh, each player's decisions ultimately determine the outcome, right? So in essence, uh, skill and game performance over our luck. And uh, second, Fairly fun uh, because, of course, everyone wants to have fun in the hobby. As a Malfo, definitely provided both when I played, and I find uh, very similar parallels to Underworlds. As uh, a Malfo, is a very good game. Uh, has a lot of good innovative design elements that are actually slowly being adopted into a lot of other systems these days. I'm seeing. Uh, for me, the three design features that drew me to the game uh, were one: alternating activations. Uh, two. A randomness mitigation, and in Malifaux, it's more with a fate deck and control hand. Uh, and uh, three, uh, diverse objectives that didn't just require killing enemy models, right? So right. I think um, those design features are some of the things that drew folks to Malifaux, and I think Underworlds has those exact same uh, mechanics. So for their part, they have alternating activations uh, to mitigate randomness while the game uses six-sided dice and incorporates what's essentially a D3 system instead of a D6 die system and includes lots of re-roll, well, re-roll mechanics and even incorporates kind of an innate die success into your roll uh, occasionally that you can guarantee at least one success in a roll-off. Uh, and while there's um, a lot of incentives to killing enemy models to score uh, glory points, which is how you win, uh, there are many successful warband designs that have other more passive ways of scoring glory and scoring objectives. So, in fact, the guy that just won Adepticon had a deck built just for holding and scoring objectives. Yeah. So it's what what I think is cool and uh, is that you know, and you kind of hinted at this, Jimmy. You know, Malfo sets a pretty high bar. Um, I mean, you and I hit when you were playing uh, Malifaux a lot, you and I were are pretty high on the game, you know, for a lot of the reasons that you said. And for the for this game to have captured you the way it has um, tells me that it's not a step down, um, that it's at least lateral and not a step up. Because, uh, you know, once you kind of get used to some of those innovative design features we see from uh, Malifaux, it's hard to go backwards and lose some of that. Um, so it's interesting. I'm anxious to talk about more about it when we get into the game itself. Um, Jason, do you see the theme? hit the table. I know the game is kind of a hybrid between miniature game, board game, and card game. Um, and I know it's built for competitiveness. Um, do you find it as thematic as playing Warhammer or playing Age of Sigmar? Or is it, you know, strictly just a, an arena place to, to kind of battle it out with cool miniatures? Yeah, for me, Craig, uh, the theme the theme is great and it definitely builds a story and they have some uh, different play styles or uh, different play modes, like with a giants and capture the, the, the flag style of game modes uh, that fill in the theme. Uh, but for me really much when it's on the tabletop, it is, it is just the competitiveness. Like, yeah, we're two war bands, but you don't really get this, uh, this sense of we're fighting over anything that, that matters as far as 
like artifacts or objectives like you do in a traditional war game. It, it's more because I think the game is almost like a, a hybrid of a board game. Um, and it's just really nice that you have that theme. The only, the theme of war bands, that's the only time that that theme is present and cool for me is the actual build of the war bands, what they're all about, kind of their play style that ties back to the age of Sig- Sigmar realm, but the actual gameplay itself uh, is more about two war bands or four war bands on the pitch, slugging it out for glory. Yeah. And, you know, as much as I talk about themes important to me, uh, I'm okay with that. Um, if the mechanics are there, which we're going to head into, and it sounds like they are, but, um, you know, to GW's credit, they've got such gorgeous miniatures that, you know, it, it's hard not to kind of get the feel for it. Right. And, and watching you guys play and kind of looking at some of the decks and, you know, seeing you go through it. I get what you're talking about, Jason, where you get kind of a feeling for the flavor of each war band and that, that uh, there's a little, they're a little asymmetrical. They've each got their own little style. So that, that makes sense to me. So that's good. Jiminy, uh, any last thoughts about theme? Yeah. So I think uh, while to Jason's point, um, you know, when you're in the game, right, I think it's just a competitive war game slash board game between two players. Uh, that all said, um, each war band has their own specific set of cards and uh, the specific cards they have are have names that are actually pretty brilliant and very thematic and uh, very fitting per the warband. Um, uh, my favorite, personally, is Scritch is the greatest. Yes, yes, which is a scaven card. <laughs> but there are uh, there are plenty of other cards that are not only have thematic titles, but then in game uh, are are actually very thematic as well. So, so an orc warband plays like orcs. Skaven play play like Skaven. That type of thing. One hundred percent. And in fact, uh, we'll, we'll go cool. into um, the inspire mechanic, which is a kind of a core feature of the game. And even the way each warband inspires is also very thematic. That's awesome. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about uh, the pregame. What are the key decisions that you have to make uh, before your models hit the table? Okay, so a good war game, in my mind, is or a good game period is going to really put you in a situation where you have to make decisions before maybe even you both get to the table, and those decisions are going to matter. Um, now, I prefer that those decisions don't decide the outcome, but I want them to. I want them to really uh, matter. And obviously, one of the first things that you know matter pregame is kind of determining how do you win the game. So um, most war games these days um, have variable win conditions. I assume, Jason, that that's the case with uh, with this game. That is correct. So there are many ways that you can win the game. The the pregame is probably the most important piece of Underworlds. And for me, it's really what kind of hooked me into this game. So, you know, to give a parallel to other GW product, you know, I was always that list tinkerer. I always thought about like the what if and then the rules interaction with the what if uh, for 40K Age of Sigmar. So what Warhammer Underworlds does really, really well is that pregame. So you when you buy Warbands and you buy the, the corset, you get a bunch of cards. Out of those cards, you build two decks. You have your objectives deck and then you have your gambit and upgrades or ploys um, deck, which is called your power deck. Um, and really the win condition is determined by your objective deck. So there's hundred at this point, I think there's hundreds of objectives, but they're all boiled down to a couple basic things, right? Kill something, 
hold something, do something. Um, mm-hmm. And the cool thing is, is like we were talking about before, is each warband has kind of its set cards, which have the set statistics on them. So they're set stats, so the way they, they kind of want to play. But you can pick whatever objectives you want from a universal set, and then you also have warband-specific objectives. So really, GW is giving you the tools to play certain warbands how you want to play them. You know, in Season 1, I played Sepulchral Guard, which are skeletons. You know, their their gimmick is they can res themselves from the dead. In that, I played a much more passive, so I'm going to hold objectives, make you come to me, score glory, which that's what you're trying to get. Like, you're trying to score glory to get the win condition more than your opponent. Um, but I did a lot of passive, so I'm going to move and I'm going to do movements, shenanigans, and hold objectives, not really care what you're doing. But then the other element of that, what goes back to just the basic game is if you kill something, you score glory. So there's two ways to win. Go through the objectives in your hand and kill stuff. Gotcha. So, so the killing stuff is just, it's a, it's a standing way to get glory, right? Regardless of the deck. Correct. Gotcha. Gotcha. But what, what really, so out of curiosity, Jason, like percentage wise, if I were to score 20 points in a game, just generally speaking, what percentage of those are going to be because I killed something and what percentage are going to be from the, uh, of the objective deck? I'm trying to think, try to figure out the, the impact of the objective deck. The objective deck is going to give you that push up and above and beyond to win the game. So if you score 20 glory, depending on what warband you're playing, so most warbands, their warbands can run anywhere from three up to nine characters so like that one that has nine characters is bleeding nine glory if they all die right so in in that game you're probably scoring 11 you know objectives and nine if you wipe them out but it's very unlikely to wipe out the other warm bear and that that only that happens very very infrequently so i would say out of 20 glory 14 or 15 are from your glory deck your objective deck and you got about five just scored on but the game really swings because as you're building your deck and constructing the way that your strategy behind this good pre-game going in like let's say i want to play an aggro warband which is just all up in your face and trying to kill you those objectives are going to stack so a simple i kill one of your guys which would net me one glory i probably have two or three cards in my hand that give me additional glory so the next you know that one guy turns into three four glory points and i'm off to a good good start so how big is the objective deck that you bring to the table uh 12 cards and and how many do you have do you have all 12 available you to, to score at any point in time do they cycle how does that work uh so each round the game is three round or three turns and you have four activations in each turn and it's alternate activation um type term so you go i go um you the beginning of each hand or each round you draw up an objective hand of three cards okay so you can cycle through nine like if you were only scoring at the end of your turn every single time you could cycle through nine uh pre-game you're allowed to burn like mulligan a hand so if you draw up three objectives you're like there is no way i'm scoring these right away you can ditch them they're gone for the entire game but it allows you to draw up three more uh, and then some objectives are score instantly. So once you meet the condition, you score it and you draw into another one, which allows you to cycle the deck quickly. Nice, nice. And that um, that mulligan feature is kind of what Jimmy was talking about with the, you know, mitigating the chance aspect of it. So that's 
That's that's cool. I like that. And and so the objective cards themselves are they all going to be warband specific or are there generic objectives um, that you know I would have the same three or four objectives that you might have in your deck? Yeah, I mean they're both. So there are universal cards, both from an objective standpoint and the power cards that you can select. Uh, and then there are warband specific. So that's really where the theme tries to play in. So if you're you're playing. You know, my, my newest warband is Godsworn Hunt, which is a kind of Conan the Barbarian style of warband. Very glass hammer. Yeah. Beautiful models. They are amazing. Um, but they have kind of these, their, their gimmick for objectives are oaths. So you can dedicate at the beginning of your turn, I'm going to accomplish this. And you announce it to your opponent, which is really weird because a lot of the objectives are hidden until condition is met. Uh, but if I do that and I reveal it to you, I get additional glory. So it's kind of like, I'm going to do this. Try to stop me. <laughs> that is thematic, right? So the kind of that cocky fighter, you know, even though you know what I'm going to do, I'm going to do it to you anyway. Yes. It's, uh, that's that's pretty fun. cool. And, and really fits you, uh, Jason, no, oh, in thanks. real life. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it sounds like, you know, Jimmy, all of these, you know, pregame stuff, um, you know, is important. In fact, it'll decide, you know, whether you win or lose. As someone who, you know, came from, you know, other game systems, you know, how do you, how do you see the pregame? Yeah, I think that, the, well, what you want, right, in any game is you want every decision to matter. I think uh, that's certainly true for Underworlds in the pregame segments. I think, um, you know, this game is relatively new, right? It's been around about for, I don't know, Jason uh, can correct me, but a year and a half or maybe two years. Uh, and I think as people are exploring the game more, they're discovering slowly new um, elements of the game that can become more strategic. So, you know, you, you start by, of course, as, as Jason mentioned, is a kind of a pseudo board game so each of you have a board right to place and that the board has to uh, the boards have to line up and connect so um you roll off to decide who gets to place the first board right and whoever wins that roll uh places the uh, first board and then the other player gets to place their board which is at that point unrevealed to the opponent um but gets to place their board a board not only that is you know unrevealed to the opponent, but they can align them however they want. So it gives them an advantage as far as positioning. Uh, however, the flip side of that is that there are five of you know, objective markers in the game that are placed after this, and the person that placed the first board has three of the five, so the majority of those objective markers. So if you have um, so if you have a objective scoring you know, objective marker holding warband you actually want to lose that role sometimes, if not most of the time. So every decision matters, I think. Uh, then, of course, you go and you place the models and you draw your hand. And um, I think that, uh, going back to the word I used earlier, that agency is very important and I, for me as far as evaluating um, you know, how the, the quality of a game. And I think Underworlds has that in all decisions. And, and do you like the deck-building aspect, Jimmy? You know, I do. I think, you know, for me, um, you know, I'll kind of you know pepper this in here over the course of the um, the discussion. You know, there are a few things, a few areas where this game is certainly very different from Malifo, and it's you know hard to to call them advantages or disadvantages because it really depends on just how you want to play a game. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, you know, as far as as far as the um, uh, pregame elements and as far as the the war bands and things like that, I think there are kind of three things that I enjoy. Uh, I think one there is having just you know between three to nine models in a warband is, is really nice. In my mind, that's that really makes us more of a skirmish game. I mean, in, in Malifaux, if I went to a tournament, I had to bring, I'd bring 40 painted models, right? That's not really a skirmish yep. game at that point. That's, you know, a, a 
just like 40k or, or not quite Warhammer Fantasy, but uh, it's not a skirmish game at that point anymore. So I think just bringing a few models is nice. So you know, model counts nice. I think, but to to the opposite of that is that there are fewer models, there are fewer options, right? But I think that's where the deck building comes in because the deck building allows you to really, to Jason's point, field a very unique warband or unique uh, warband plus deck in any matchup you have because your opponent, while they know what your models do, they have no idea what your deck's going to do before the game, right? right? So you could be scoring all, you know, all kinds of different objectives that are, you know, unrevealed to your opponent until you play them. The ability of each warband to have flexibility to play certain play styles, all dependent upon that deck, uh, is great. And that's really what adds to the complexity of the game, which I think is what a lot of us, especially folks that have played an incredibly complex game like Malifaux, look forward to. Yeah. And and it's, you know, in a lot of war games, um, you know, you're, you're spending time building a crew, right? And it sounds to me like what you're really doing here is you're picking a crew because uh, it sounds like it's set pretty much, right? You get the same models if you pick this, you know, this warband and that warband. There's not variation in which models you can bring, right? Those are set. Correct. But where the variation comes in is how you're building your objective deck, uh, your, what is it, action deck? What is your, the other deck called? Your, your power deck, yeah. Your and, power deck, yeah. Yeah, and, and to provide, you know, d- additional uh, kind of color to what Jason was mentioning earlier, there, and we can talk about this more later as far as just the actual gameplay, but there are, you know, in general, multiple ways to score. You know, some of them, to Jason's point, are more aggro, right? You, you kill a model, you score a glory from killing that model. And then you also score a glory from like a condition that you meet on your objective, which is, you know, kill a model um, and do the exact uh, damage that's required to take them out. So not more more damage than their wounds total or less damage. And we'll obviously would kill them if it was less. But, you know, don't kill them the exact uh, amount of damage that's required to take them out of action. Right. Or kill them with a special uh, type of attack, which is a cleave attack or uh, there, there are a variety of things. And, you know, I'm kind of just riffing here, but there are a variety of conditions that you meet. Uh, when you um, when you kill a model, you can score. But obviously, you know, someone listening to this would be like, well, geez, well, why wouldn't everyone just score uh, or try to score their glory aggro, right? Because you already gain a glory from killing a model and you just tack on glory on top of that. Well, all those more aggressive objectives that require you to kill a model, they're typically only allowed to score uh, one glory at a time. Unless it's really, you know, hard or it's very specific objective. Uh, you know, objective you have to meet in the action, while more passive scoring objective cards, ones that require you to hold objective markers until the end of the turn, or they're required to do, you know, four different uh, actions over the course of, you know, all four activations in your turn, they score two or three glory at a time. As a result, the more passive or, you know, objective holding warbands certainly can catch up, if not score more than aggressive warbands, even though the aggressive warbands have the advantage of, Gaining additional glory, but by killing a model and also removing another model from an enemy model from from the board. Yeah. So at first view, it sounds like the uh, the aggro style seems obvious, but uh, but that's kind of neat how they've structured it to encourage uh, different play styles. Um, I like that. That's cool, Jason. How much would like if I go if I know you're playing, you know, your the war band that you've got there. Am I going to see roughly the same type of cards in in your in your power deck and in your objective deck, or do you surprise people? Um, how much variation do you see from two guys that play the same warband? Well, I am extremely happy you asked you asked that question um, because that is why I love the game so much. Yes, the warbands because the cards are the same. So if you're playing dwarves, like they're same mechanic. The way they inspire their stat line, 
the four fighters, all the same. But the way that you play dwarves may be completely different the way that I play dwarves. Now, there'd be some people out there that say, well, to be the most efficient, you have to play Warband X in this play style. But for me, I play off that. So, I, you know, going to Nova last year, playing the skeletons, they were an under, quote unquote, underpowered Warband. And I played them kind of that passive aggressive where I went back and I made you think I was only going four objectives, which sucked you in. But then I had enough cards in my deck to really deliver a punch to take out the few fighters that you sent at me. So it caught people off guard. Um, and you know, the current warband that does this really well is like a Zinch warband or the, the gets the Zinch being just that Zinch from age of Sigmar 40 K and gets being the little goblin things. You don't know when, somebody puts those war bands across from you, it really what they're going to play. Like that Zinch guy may play all into the blue horror and be very like passive and trying to get cards out that score extra glory called tomes at the end of the game. Or they could be extremely aggro with their spellcaster and come right at you. Uh, Gets, same thing. They have so many fighters, they can overwhelm you and just rush you with nine different fighters on the board. But at the same time, because they have nine fighters, they're really good at holding objectives. Plus they have a bunch of special uh, rules that allow them to scurry around the map rather quickly. Um, so you you kind of play it out. And then another thing that is really awesome about the game is uh, an official game is best of three. So the game plays so quick, and that's you know one of the things, the reasons that I'm in there. You can normally play a game between 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and you're, you're done with one round. Well, the game is meant to be played over an hour and a half of three rounds. Um, so now... There's this whole gamesmanship where we come out game one and, you know, I might play a little passive and to throw you off and maybe not show my whole hand or maybe I have the game in hand and I'm winning and I don't score some glory on purpose so you don't see my full strategy by the end of the game. And then that way, game two, you're there's still a surprise. You don't know what cards are coming on my hand. Um, but it also plays in the, the, the opposite of maybe you figure out what someone's uh, tactics are. So, you know, they're playing what is normally known as an aggressive warband, but they're playing it passively and scoring objectives. So game one, you lay out your warbands and you're like, I'm going to run away. All of a sudden, next you know, you lose by nine glory. Well, game two, you're going to position your boards and those objectives to be right up on them so you can disrupt their play style. So there's a lot of uh, gamesmanship and counterbalance through the things, allowing you to play the warbands in the way that you see fit. I got to say, there's something you said there, Jason, that's extremely attractive to me because I, when I'm playing games and I don't care if it's, you know, a a big war game or a small, you know, board game, I hate gotcha type stuff, right? Where, you know, you end up scoring or winning because I just didn't know about something. And, you know, the fact that, you know, I've got my set decks and my set war bands, which you don't know exactly what they're going to be. You, you might have some ideas. Maybe there's two or three ways I might go, but you don't really know. And we sit down, we play around and you might see, you know, some of my deck, all of my deck. And when I go into round two, both players are, are pe- kind of past that gotcha po- moment, except, you know, for some of the gamemanship that you talked about. I, I like that a lot. 
Um, and I think best of best of three is a great format um, to mitigate and increase that player agency because you know ultimately you know we want things to be exciting and randomness can cause excite, exciting but ultimately you'd like the person who made the best decisions to win the game um, and it sounds like you know despite the fact that there's dice and there's cards there's enough of those decisions being made and things are spread out over multiple rounds that it, it really kind of makes sure that you know the one who made the best choices wins. Yeah, and that just to emphasize that point even more, there there are going to be those moments where you're like, oh crap, he has that card. Like for example, rebound. You set up this whole plan, you run in, you smack the guy in the face, you're like, I've killed you and I've scored seventeen thousand glory for all these objectives because my plan worked. And they're like, Oh wait, here's a reaction card, which is rebound. So it which can be very much I got you like oh crap I didn't know you had rebound and what rebound does is I roll a die if it's successful that attack is actually applied to your fighter and you <laughs> die. But what GW has done is those type of gotcha moments they've put into die rolls and that that one card in particular which is the biggest gotcha in the game is a thirty three percent chance to be successful and then oh wait you may have cards in your hand which can mitigate that even more by like denying it so yeah like yes you get to see the three games so there's less I got you you get to see the play style and adapt your play style to the opponent you're playing. Plus, the uh, quote-unquote gotcha moments are typically all about a dice roll, which I think is kind of cool because then it puts it into chance. Yep. So, Jimmy, by by the third round when you're playing, um, do, I mean, do you generally get a, a feel for what, you know, what the other persons bring into the table um, by the third round? Or are there still some surprises that come out of their decks? That's a great question. I think it depends on you know how the previous two games went. Sometimes you can go through all your cards. Sometimes you don't. Uh, I just echo what both you guys said. Uh, that actually, in a tournament setting, right, the best of three format is my favorite part of the game. And I think mm-hmm. it's actually the biggest differentiator between uh, Underworlds and Malifaux uh, in, in Underworld's favor, in my mind, is that uh, while Malifaux, I think it uh, certainly um, uh, provides some things that Underworld's doesn't, right? I mean, there's certainly a lot more options, right? There's certainly a lot um, uh, there are more models, there are you know more unique actions, all these things are, you know, they're five turns instead of, you know, the short, you know, 30, 40 minute game. Uh, the fact that you really just you get out of that uh, gotcha type play style, which was very prevalent in Malifa because there were so many rules. And, and even, yeah. even in playing third edition, you know, I think they've, they've worked on that, but at the same time, because, you know, it, it is such a complex game, right? It's one of the reasons why lots of folks like it, but because it is so much, such a complex game, uh, you're still going to have lots of gotchas because you know, no one can possibly really know everything in the game. So uh, I think it creates, for, it creates a lot, um, a much, you know, healthier uh, game environment. I think players feel more satisfied uh, playing games in a tournament setting as a result. Getting that first game kind of out of the way. And if uh, if something, you know, just incredible happens, or maybe you just have, you know, terrible luck. It happens in Malifaux too. You just draw, you know, five terrible control hands and, you know, and, and card flips don't go your way and key flips. Like that can, that can, you can feel burned by that, right? But uh, typically, from what I found playing Underworlds, is you know that can certainly happen for one game. It's difficult to see happen over the course of three games. So I think everyone generally has their moment where they feel like they've done something and, and scored something and, and had a good time within that format. 
That's a big deal. That's a big deal. All right. So I like that, guys. I like uh, there's a lot of what you talked about that's attractive to me. Um, I like that uh, you have some really key decisions to make uh, at the beginning of the game. I, I like the switch up. I'm used to, you know, building armies and building crews and, and you know, building gangs and things like that. It's kind of neat to kind of take some of that Magic the Gathering feel and get, get into the deck building. Um, and uh, Jason, I appreciate that, uh, you know, even though I might Play, be playing the same warband as you are i might attack it a different way um so that's that's great all right guys when we get back um we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the uh, cool mechanics that really uh are going to make this the game that i need to be playing next hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so we've picked our warbands, we've built our control decks, we've built our power decks. Um, you, uh, we're sitting down at the table, we've set out our boards, which was, by the way, another aspect of that pregame I thought was really interesting. Now I want to get a sense of, you know, when when the dice start rolling, when the models start moving, Jason, what are really some aspects of this game that you think put it above uh, other games that you've played? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, being a lover of the game, it's the whole package, but I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the actual dice. So even when the odds are stacked against you, there is a mechanic within the dice that can save your little hiney or strike the killing blow, and that's called the crit. So on every single dice, you know, GW game, so six-sided die, there's an exclamation point. And if I'm attacking you, Craig, and I roll, let's just say I have to roll three dice and I'm hitting on Furies, which are the little sword marks on, on the attack dice, and I roll three swords, and you're like, damn it, Jason, you make me suck at games again. Um, so I roll three, and you have your lonely orc there and he's blocking on one dice and he's looking for shields you're like i can't block three successes well you can roll that dice and if you roll that crit it negates everything and as well as i cannot push you which is another game mechanic if i score a successful attack i can push you away um i cannot do that as well so it really levels that playing field as far as giving you a chance like you got that 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 puncher's chance in there to get, to get the knockout. So I really like that. And then for me being a father of two with very limited time, this game, what makes it so unique is it's as simple as a board game. So if you and I just buy the starter set, we can be rolling dice in a matter of minutes. Um, but it's from like, for me, it's quick, it's easy, but it's extremely, extremely complex uh, when you get to that next level. Um, and there's nothing better than going out to the the game store on the every other Tuesday that I get with my my permission for my wife <laughs> and be able to play four, five, six games of Underworlds worth 40K. You know, that was all night. Like I was playing yeah. one game, having one interaction with one of my friends. With this game, I can play five games in that, that limited time that I have, and they make my brain hurt. And then, like we talked about with deck building, it allows me to be engaged in the hobby all week long because I'm constantly tweaking decks. And then, oh, wait, I do like to paint sometimes, but I don't like to paint whole armies, so I play, paint three. 
I can do that. So yeah. it allows me to get my hobby on too. Yeah, and you know, Jimmy mentioned that too. I think that that's a huge selling point. The fact that you know, you know, granted, games like you know Wild West Exodus and and Malifaux, you know, granted we might only have you know five five or ten models on the table. But Jimmy made a great point in saying, but you're bringing forty to the tournament. And so you're not painting five or 10 models, whereas this, you know, you're you're playing the same warband for the whole tournament. Right. And you and you've tweaked up and, and you know, got this deck in place. And then it's then it's go, uh, which I think is really attractive. And, and boy, oh, boy, being able to get in several games in a night. I mean, there's not board games anymore that you can find that you can get in three or four or five games in a night. Um, so that's great. And uh, I never thought about it, Jason. But, you know, when you when you play a war game. Uh, whether it be 40k or Malifaux, you know, I go out on a Tuesday night to play a game. I'm going to interact with one person mainly the whole time. Uh, I hadn't thought about the fact that you could go out on a Tuesday night and play three or four different, you know, guys or gals. So that's pretty cool. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, a little bit follow up on the dice though, Jason. So does everybody have the same dice? Yeah. Like everybody has attack dice and everybody has defense dice. They're the same style. So like, you know, defense dice have a shield, have two shields on them. They have a dodge marker and then they have the crit um, as well as some support mechanics. So if your fighters have friendly units by, you can get, you can mitigate your, your odds by that. Um, but everyone rolls the same dice. What is different is on their cards, their stat lines, you know, some some people will be more accurate as far as they'll hit on hammers, uh, which a, a hammer roll on one dice would be 50-50. You got two hammers and you have a crit, crit so 50% chance on that one die. Um, so, or they maybe roll more dice. So Godsworn Hunt, one of my, the coolest things about them is I can, they're with the interactions of the cards and my stat line. I multiple times in a game will be rolling six, seven, eight dice at once. Nice. Um, but if I don't get that crit, your one die may save you. That, that makes sense to me. And you mentioned what the crit can do as far as saving me. What happens on the attack dice if I hit a crit? So if you, if you roll two crits and I'm a defender, what do those two crits mean to me as the defender? It's the same. It, it, the same thing. So if I roll two quick crits, the only way you can block it is by rolling two crits. Which oh. if you're not rolling two dice, then you cannot block that that attack. So same mechanic back and forth. Criticals. Can you roll a crit? It's the way to win the game. Yeah, that's cool. So you always have that little hail mary. Yes. Yeah. And then you know there are card interactions off the dice rolls. So like you know. Jimmy mentioned cleave earlier, which is a special rule for some characters that they'll actually ignore shields on defensive rules. But then you accompany that with like some objective, say if you're successful with a cleave attack, you score an additional glory. So um, that's how the game is kind of intertwined where everything meets together and um, makes an interaction. Yeah, that's cool. And it, um, you know, that, that kind of that dice mechanic is something that Fantasy Flight, um, I think, really did a lot with. But it, it um, I don't know if I've ever, ever seen kind of that crit aspect um, and the way that that, you know, can kind of be the save all or do all, um, which uh, even I don't have all all hope lost. Right. Um, no, as long as no, I can roll a not. crit. <laughs> so <laughs> that's cool. Jimmy, uh, how about, uh, how about for you? So, you know, Jason talked about the dice and really, you know, how cool that is. What are some in-game mechanics that uh, make you come back to the table? Yeah. Just to add a quick comment on, on the dice. So uh, for, for Malifo players, you could first of all, roll on a crit, it's like rolling a six, right. And uh, on a six sided dice, and you could think of it almost like a very kind of 
mellow, muddled down version of a red joker, right? So it can happen in any dice roll. Uh, it kind of overrides everything else. Uh, it could, you know, like Jason said, it could totally save you. Uh, if someone else rolls a bunch of crits, you know, obviously they could totally bone you. So uh, it, it creates that extra, um, a little extra element. Uh, um, I mean, increase uh, that that randomness, enjoyment of a game and crazy stuff can happen. But both parties can do it. Um, and I think it's it just overall the outcome is uh, it's not certainly as severe as a Red Joker was in, in M2E. But is there things outside of the dice that you find exciting in game that make you come back to the table? Yeah, yeah. So I think just uh, for me... Um, the primary things in game that, that draw me uh, to Warhammer Underworlds is going back to what I said earlier. Uh, in in a best of three format, reduce the number of gotcha moments. Uh, I think that um, that creates uh, a much healthier game environment uh, in a game that you know, while you know, as I said. Uh, not as overall complex as Malifaux, but still very complex, right? I think uh, it creates um, an environment that uh, uh, where everyone can kind of get something in and, and do something that is successful and, and have a good time. Uh, I think, uh, too, the idea of uh, having a, just a real a true uh, skirmish a game model count, right? So just yeah. bringing a handful of models, uh, taking them wherever you go, and just bringing some cards with you. Busting those out, you can you know, the setup, the you know stuff with Malfo or 40k or Age of Sigma, you have set up boards and terrain and all this stuff. It takes you know half an hour to set up a game. Uh, this you can just sit down and start rolling dice somebody in five minutes. And and last thing, and this is not so much in game, uh, but I think just overall uh, when when you speak to the the system itself is. The fact that I've been very surprised how much uh, Games Workshop has uh, really tended to this game and the rule system. I think their um, errata and FAQ schedule is is very impressive, uh, once a quarter at least, right? I think they um, one of the things they really do is curate uh, the cards uh because you know, there are new releases that come out every quarter with new warbands and new cards. I think one that, that of course, changes the meta. But if, uh, you know, certain cards, maybe because of interactions they hadn't foreseen, which is, you know, rare but happens, uh, really start dominating the meta, uh, they'll come in with uh, an errata or an FAQ either to limit um, uh, the number of, of those types of cards you can have via like, kind of a restricted list. You can only have, in the current edition of the game, uh, a total of five restricted "Quote unquote cards in your deck out of the 32 or more you'll have, and there are you know probably I don't know Jason what like 25, 30 restricted cards in the game right now. So it just it creates what what this does is it creates an environment that allows you to build a lot more unique decks, right? So people are just all bringing the same good cards. Um, I think uh, their attention to you know GW's attention to the game and to the competitive format of the game uh, is is really impressive, and I think. That is really encouraging for me as someone who used to play Games Workshop games, but stopped because they really didn't seem to have much of an attention on providing good rule sets, just making models and making money. Uh, but uh, yeah, now that the, a $1 billion company is uh, paying very close attention to making a competitive rule set for a competitive game, that's that's a good thing for all gamers, I think. Yeah, and that just, if I can jump in there real quick, uh, yeah, and the other support element is GW supports this with quarterly kits. So they provide stores with uh, trophies, you know, to run tournaments and you, they call them 
uh, shaved glass trophies going back to that theme or setting. So they support it that way. There are alternative art cards. So they're not any like unique cards that will break the game, but they're cards that just give you different artwork to show that you are out there. They give you acrylic tokens. Um, so those are all just little little cool trinkets that you want to go and play in a tournament and, and, and get that are supported through GW. And then, you know, we'd be really remiss the other unique game element and Jimmy mentioned it earlier, but every warband has an inspire mechanic. So like we talked about every model or every character has a set stat line. Well, certain conditions through the game, you can inspire that model which then change his stat line and most times make them a heck of a lot better so you could go from you know uh your defense could be on one dice it could go to three it could go to two you could maybe go from dodges to shields which improves your percentage chance of winning most times it may be an extra wound or it may be extra move that inspire and all the the war bands going back to the theme the way that the Inspire is very thematic, like Jimmy was talking about with the Skaven uh, or the Skeletons. If you res some guy, if you bring them back to life, they become inspired. Godsworn Hunt, if you play an upgrade, they like go crazy like, oh, look, I have an upgrade. And then I Inspire and become even more dangerous than I once was. So a lot of cool things. Th- that whole mechanic is um, really cool. You know, another game that has it is... Uh the other side by weird games where you flip the card. And what I think is cool and both games have this, and it's just, it's so cool is that not only, you know, instead of like morale that you see in a lot of games where, you know, things happen and th- things get worse for you here. I love the fact that you're inspired, right? You, you, you go to glory as they say, and, and the other side. And I think that's really neat. And I love the fact that each war band does it differently, right? So we don't all flip our cards for the same reasons. And that, I think that that's kind of a neat aspect too. Um, I love that mechanic. When uh, when I met you guys at the store a couple of weeks ago and I saw that they had that mechanic, uh, that was very, very exciting. And going to what uh, both you and uh, Jimmy mentioned, um, you know, it's, even though I'm on the outside looking in when it comes to GW, you know, having played GW and being over, you know, underwater with them for 12, 13 years, it, it, the company's changed. It, whether it be just the Warhammer TV and just the level of engagement, I didn't realize, though, that they have also kind of stepped up how much they support the game once they put it out because and Jason you've played during this time and Jimmy you played during this time you know they were terrible about just pushing stuff out and then you know you never heard about it again you know you never got any updates you never got any erratas um there were so many box games like that Dreadfleet and stuff that they put out that were good games but they just kind of sold them and then they were done with them um I, i'm really happy to hear that the company has realized that you know a, an active live curated community is is going to be healthy i love the fact that they're doing that support for local stores um so that's all of that is very very cool all right guys when we get back we're going to talk a little bit about the hobby and then we're going to wrap up All right. The last thing that's going to keep me into a game and attract me to game is the hobby aspect. And uh, Jason, uh, this is where you and I are going to really, I don't know, spend the next 90 minutes really talking about the intricacies of how to paint and how to build. Um, but uh, I really, I think this hobby section is going to be pretty short for this game because, um, you know, you can talk about bad things about GW all day, right? You can say everything that you hate about that company. The thing you can't say is they do not 
they have the best models out there, period. There is no other company out there putting out better, small-scale, non-bust models than GW. And not only from the sculpting, um, and even though even if you're not into the aesthetics, you got to appreciate the beauty of the sculpts. It's incredible how much easier it is to build their models and what they're able to do with three pieces that other companies uh, can't do with ten pieces. Um, it, it's incredible. So I don't I don't know whether we really need to discuss it back and forth. Um, you know, Jimmy, I, if you just want to talk real quick about you know the painting aspect, you talked about it's nice not have to paint a, a ton of models. Um, uh, is there anything really to highlight there? Or is it just these are great models and they're fun to paint? Yeah, no, I mean, they're all great models, obviously, as you said. Um, and, and to kind of, yeah, to even you know, double down on that, that concept, yeah, of just easy to build models, right? I mean, each model, each miniature in the game can be snap assembled, which uh, is crazy. Uh, we, and they're all in like three to four major pieces, which, you know, as you know, it's like what? have as many pieces as there are that were the Yanlo's beard. So, I mean, it just, right. it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. It's very easy to get into it. Uh, very easy to get others involved. Um, you know, for me, I, I personally enjoy, um, uh, maybe, you know, customizing models and converting and, you know, you certainly can do that right for, uh, for these models too. Um, because they're snap fit, there's maybe a little um, less opportunity. But, you know, man, to be frank, uh, after slaving over models for um, years and years now and uh, building large armies, et cetera, it's actually a really nice break just to I uh, bet. just to build and paint three or four models and go out and play. It's really nice. And what's great is that for you, you only paint the front half of the model, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for those of you that um, haven't, uh, haven't seen them and maybe Jimmy, if I can talk into sending some photographs, I want to get get them on the website so people can see them. Jimmy's got a gorgeous uh, warband that he's painted some of the, some really great uh, OSL and uh, non-metallic metal work and stuff like that. But uh, I got I got a huge tickle out of it because the the backside of him, you know, he's got the light coming from the front. So at first glance, it looks like he just painted the front of the models and not the back. And it's uh, <laughs> that's where that joke comes from. But uh, they are gorgeous. So, Jimmy, if you can send me some pictures, I'd like to put them up on the site so people can see them. Sure. And just so everyone's aware, this game was designed with the models first. So these models were actually designed to be put in Age of Sigmar. And they're so good. And this is not an exaggeration that GW said these models are too good to just be lost within a line that we want to design a skirmish game around these models specifically. And that is how Underworld started in the first Oh, place. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. So closing arguments, gentlemen, I'll let Jason go first. Jason, I want the top two reasons why I should be playing Warhammer Underworlds. Craig, because I know you value your time and you want to get as many games in as possible. That's why you should be playing Underworlds. It's a fast, fun, quick play game with a ton of depth that will allow you to flex your hobby muscles or in your case, just roll some crits and have a chance. <laughs> That's great. How about for you, Jimmy? Top two reasons I need to be playing this game. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, it really uh, provides a great competitive atmosphere uh, while also being accessible with a kind of relatively simple rules to get started and, and fewer gotcha moments. That's cool. One thing that uh, these guys have been doing with me for several years now is uh, twice a year we go camping um, here in North Carolina. There's a 
uh, lake um, about 45 minutes outside of Raleigh. And uh, I don't know, we're coming into the sixth, seventh year now that we've done this. And uh, we usually try to go at least twice a year when we can. And it's uh, three days. And some people come for all three days. Some people just come for one day. Um, I The main reason, guys, that I got that starter set for Underworlds is I'm going to get those models together because uh, I think it's you know, pack small, which is perfect for camping. Right. And, uh, I'm really hoping that, uh, we'll get a couple people cause there's a couple of the Malfo crew that'll be coming out for camping and they also play this game as well. So I have a sneaking suspicion. This might be an underworld's uh, camping trip. Um, so I'm excited about that. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, what's the easiest place for people to track down you and your great podcast? Well, I'm just excited that I don't have to carry a six by four into the woods this year. So, <laughs> Like you ever did. Oh, no, actually, you know what? I was about to give you crap about that. You were the only other guy except for me that would lug a bunch of stuff up to make sure people could play games. So credit to you, Jason. You would you would actually lug that stuff up like I could. But uh, yeah, it's a little bit easier bringing uh, Underworlds, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it would definitely uh, be be easier um and then you know to answer your question where can people find me so like i said i am a member of the battle mallet podcast you can find us on uh, facebook at battle mallet podcast uh or also on twitter i run under the handle of tabled noob on twitter because i also suck at games so um twitter at battle mallet one that's where you can find us we have a discord i'm always in there hanging out hobby and playing games find us come chat yeah. And if you have not listened to the uh, podcast, guys, that's um, it's a must listen. And uh, all of the links that uh, that uh, Jason talked about, I'm going to have those in the show notes. Uh, you know, Jimmy. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think you're on Twitter. Uh, you barely use Facebook. You don't have a podcast. You don't have a YouTube channel. So I don't know if there's anything you want to plug. I mean, yeah, I just live in my hut in the woods. I, I, had to, I had to drive an hour and a half to civilization to find a computer to do this. Um, but um, no, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I'm looking forward to the you know, to playing Underworlds competitively. I'm going to Nova hopefully this year, and I may also go to Gen Con. A lot of uh, former uh, competitive, uh, well, maybe current, but you know, uh, competitive Malfo players are uh, doing uh, well with Underworlds now and getting into the game. So, you know, most important for me is just you know having a large, robust, uh, competitive war gaming community, right? And I think uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, Weirds had a bit of a snafu for the past year between M2E and M3. Hopefully, they recover. But um, you know, in in the meantime and and going forward, certainly. Uh, I think Underworlds is a is a wonderful proxy for Malifaux. It's slightly different, but uh, also a lot of advantages. Well, I, I have to say that you know, for me, uh, I like. It sounds like you can do both, um, which is really why I ended up breaking to the pressure from you guys and, and buying it because they sound they sound different from each other. They're two different experiences. Um, it's not like just having two war games, right? You they, they play different. They have different play times and things like that. Um, so for those of you that uh, you guys already know how to find the podcast, obviously because you're listening to the thing. Make sure you check out uh, the Third Floor Wars website. That's thirdfloorwars.com. And also make sure you check out our YouTube channel um, where we've got uh, weekly content going up as long uh, as well as this podcast. Uh, Jason, Jimmy, can't thank you guys enough for taking the time. And uh, I'll see you at the campsite. Yeah, thanks for having me. See you, Greg. All right, take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T-H-I-R-D. We'll catch you next time on The Third Floor.